What's going on, everybody? This is Wrong Will, episode 448 podcast of Hardcore Cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we have the man who coined that expression, producer Adam Rakoff. But Adam, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Thank you, James. It's great to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been... When was the last time you were on? I feel like, was it 2001, perhaps? I mean, that was forever ago. 2001? You weren't running this in 2001. Yeah, but I mean, we did our epic, <laughs> no, what know, was it, our kidding. 50th anniversary uh, yeah, look back maybe. that? It had to be like seven months ago or so. Might, it might have been, yeah. And we, we did like two, in a, we did two episodes that month. We did a, a solo episode with John Holdery. Oh, so that was like then. May then. That was like you know, yeah. forever ago. So that, yeah, we are long overdue in getting yeah. you back on the podcast. Well, in case somebody is a new listener and they never heard one of your previous appearances talking about Star Trek or whatever the case might be, Introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, what you do, all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm a filmmaker, a producer, an artist, a dad, <laughs> a former Apple employee, and uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, Star Trek, science fiction, The Twilight Zone, which we've pretty much covered all of those topics at some point over the last few years on Wrong Reel. And uh, James and I also are producing partners for uh, animated short films. We've done now three together and maybe something else in the future. We'll see. Um, what else? What else do we do? We do? <laughs> well, what I love about getting you on the show is when we get a chance to talk about maybe forgotten chapters in the history of animation. I feel like we've done a few of these now where we kind of wind the clock back. And sometimes it's for a film that we are nostalgic about from our childhood. Sometimes we are looking at it more from the point of view that we have as producers of animation. But today we're going to be kind of doing both at once because when we're tackling the 1985 film Vampire Hunter D, which I'm very nostalgic about because when I was like 17 or 18, I watched it a billion times and often in a state of chemically altered consciousness and Adam is new to the franchise but this is a franchise that has had a series of manga and comics as well as some other animated films and TV shows it's been going on for quite a while now but it was created or directed by Toyo Ishida who people probably know better from uh, Fist of the North Star which is just fucking awesome I'm a huge Fist of the North Star fan but what I didn't know until preparing for this episode is that in the mid 80s 
This was the first in an attempt to make a series of essentially straight-to-video animation marketed toward adults. And I found this interesting quote. Oh, here it is. All right. So uh, director Toyo Oshida, he said his intention for the film was to create an, an OVA, as they call it, an original video animation that people who had been tired from studying or working hard would enjoy watching instead of watching something that would make them feel even more tired. And yeah. sometimes... That's something I'm really in the mood for. I want something that's incredibly stimulating, either due to its violent content or its sexual content or a mix of the two. I'm not necessarily in the mood for more homework or substance or like soul-searching character studies. Sometimes I just want something visceral and intense. And I think with Vampire Hunter D, Fist of the North Star, and a lot of their future endeavors, they were very successful on that front. But how would you characterize your own interest in Japanese animation and in the 80s and 90s as, you know, because I know you're a massive comic freak, how much Japanese animation were you watching back in the day? Yeah, I wasn't exposed to very much, at least in terms of films. There was a fair amount of television that was being brought over. There were shows like Robotech and um, uh, another show that um, I watched sometimes with my brother called... Um, what was it called? The star. They had this big ship in space. That, that I forget the name of it. Uh, anyway, there were a couple shows like this on television that were sort of being syndicated or being brought over. That was sort of my first exposure to any kind of Japanese style animation. But there, there wasn't a lot of access for me growing up in a small central Pennsylvania town to uh, Japanese animated films. Even even in in the early 90s when I started renting a lot of movies from the local video stores, there really just wasn't a lot uh, available. They just weren't they weren't getting those types of, of movies. So it wasn't until a lot later that I sort of discovered more in college when I was studying animation that I really started to discover Miyazaki and other Japanese animated films that um, were really well regarded critically and artistically. Um, this was one of those films that I had seen. Um, pieces of, I think, on, it might have been the Cartoon Network or Sci-Fi, but they were heavily edited, and I never really saw it from the beginning. So for me, this was my first proper viewing. I, I was able to get a copy of uh, a pretty recent Blu-ray release um, that uh, claims to be the original cult classic digitally remastered from the original film elements. Um, I think it came out three years ago. Yeah, it came out in 2015. Yeah. For, uh, for my consumption, I had the original 1992 VHS original. There's two different English dubs. There's the 1992 dub, and there's the 2015. The film obviously was released in Japan in 85. And it's a weird thing where I can't watch the movie unless I watch the dub that I remember from my childhood. So even though, like, and luckily someone has posted that to YouTube and like, you know, the resolution's crummy. It's like, basically it's like a, anyway, it's the worst possible way to see it. But for me to have that, ex the emotional experience I'm looking for, the voices have to be what I remember. Hmm, you're much better than I expected. So with due respect, I'll kill you with my favorite weapon. Ah! <laughs> 
once was told of a mutant who could twist space around him, and now it seems that I've met him. <laughs> now you die. Why aren't you dying? I see. He's a damn peer. No, I want to kill him. But Lamika... You heard me. Very well, if you insist. But he was supposed to be mine. A Dampil, hmm? The half-breed spawn of a vampire and a human. I've heard of your kind, but I've never seen one before. Oh, well, no matter. You're still going to die. We're wasting time. Stop this nonsense and take me to the Count. I've come to see him, not you. What a fool! Do you think that you have a chance against someone of my lineage? Go back to the castle and tell Count Lee, visitors from the past shall return to the darkness whence they came. What do you mean, visitors from the past? Same thing happens with Akira. Like for whatever reason, in the early '90s, there were a lot of uh, Japanese animated movies that got dubbed and dumped on the market. Whether you're talking about Ninja Scroll or like Gogo 13, The Professional, and things like that, I can't rewatch them unless they're the version <laughs> I remember. So I will right. sacrifice crummy visuals for the audio. Like I mean, Akira, especially like if I need to hear Tetsuo and I need to hear Kaneda the way I remember them, and yeah. even if I watch it in Japanese the way it's supposed to be, I'm like, oh, I need my Tetsuo and Kaneda the way I remember them. Yeah, no, I agree. I, it, it, I. I did have my first actual VHS uh, Jap- you know, anime film was Akira. I had a, a 1989 VHS release widescreen, which is very nice. rare. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't even know. I got it through some comic. I, you know, used to have these comic book catalogs where you could order back issues of comics. And they would sometimes have uh, VHS tapes for, for rare um, animated movies that were hard to find in stores. And uh, that's how I ordered my copy and I had really no idea what I was getting into, <laughs> but, um, it, it, it kind of blew my mind watching it on a 20 inch TV widescreen. So it was even smaller, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it just sort of, it, it looked like nothing I had seen in terms of American animation, the quality, the, 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 you know, the violence, yeah, the even if you've action. been watching like Voltron or speed race or whatever the case might be, yeah. those are, Kid shows marketed toward a very young, innocent sensibility. Akira is like fucking Metropolis. It's like right. fucking Blade Runner, Aliens. Like one of these giant sci-fi extravaganzas. And because they're trying to condense like 700 manga into one story yeah. narratively, it's very dense. And so it's hard on a first viewing to even understand what the hell is happening. Yeah. And let me rewind. The show that I was remembering – oh, or I forgot – that I used to watch as a kid was called Star Blazers. Oh, it, very cool. Excellent. I remember this, Star Blazers, yeah. There was a ship in space that had the wave motion gun, this giant, massive, powerful gun. It was like a battleship in space. And uh, again, I, I, that was one of my very earliest, you know, early 80s exposures to that style of animation. But again, pretty much family-friendly, you know, yes, it had some action and violence, but not gory in any way. Nothing like <laughs> Vampire Hunter D. So, yeah, without a doubt, this this film, having been released in the mid-80s, was a complete game changer for animation in terms of the, the gore and nudity and everything else. Again, these 
this version that I watched, I'm, I'm assuming, was the original uncut version that was screened in in theaters uh, in 1985 in Japan. But uh, the scenes that you know, there were many scenes were obviously excised <laughs> for its various TV uh, you know releases over the over the course of the 1990s. Um, but it was um, I was very impressed with it. I do wish I had seen it fully when I was younger, when I was maybe 16. I think I would have eaten it up and just like you, like you watched Horny, it hormonal teens <laughs> yeah. are the perfect target audience for this movie. And that's what he even said. I mean, they even said that this was targeted, targeted explicitly for male teenagers in, in sort of adult, the young adult demographics. And it's true. There's not a lot that really targets that sort of 16 17 year old audience it's uh early 90s comics did i feel like that like jim lee like x-men sensibility that image comic sensibility it it was muscles guns knives tits it was like everything teenagers want and it was just like whoa it's kind of teasing you a little bit like yeah just as you're sort of on the cusp of adulthood you're getting to see just a little bit more than i mean today it's a whole different world with the internet we're talking about (laughs) pre-internet times when you know seeing an animated you know nude body was a huge a huge revelation (laughs) well there's a lot of that out there now but usually they're pretty low budget cheaply done and just they're awful it's very rare where you see like titillation done with like some artistry and some craft and a decent budget but what's cool about this flick is how it's a weird it's far in the future it's got a bit of like a European medieval sensibility in terms of werewolves and vampires and castles and crosses and old towns. Swords. But at the same time, yeah. it's got this Japanese sensibility with like the cool looking hats and the giant samurai swords. And I love these hybrids of European and Japanese mythology. We, we've talked about it a lot with Martin Kessler about the, the franchise Dark Souls. I think the video game series Castlevania pulled a lot from this movie as well. I mean, obviously, Castlevania, I think, came out on the NES around 85, 86, so it's all part of like that same tapestry that it's emerging from. But I love that hybrid of European and Japanese sensibility, and also the fact that, as they described at the beginning of this movie, it's set in the year 120080. It's very specific, but very, very yeah. far in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, and it just, they say, the story takes place in the distant future where mutants and demons slither through a world of darkness. That's all they tell you, but I love the fact that this world is full of horrible monstrosities like every day is a a battle for survival and it's almost like these mutants and these demons etc are are like rats and you know just like the regular vermin we have here in new york you're just dealing with that crap instead but then a few levels and a few echelons above those regular everyday threats you have people like count magnus lee who is ten thousand years old yeah exactly yeah it's it like you said it it definitely seems influenced by the sort of hammer horror films of oh, the 60s and 70s. And, uh, and I find it, found it strange, but in a good way, that it was this sort of mashup of genres. You know, it's, yes, it's animation, anime. Yes, it's, it's horror and science fiction because it's in the future. Uh, but it's also this, this you know, action adventure. There's just a lot of stuff happening all at once. And it seemed like there was a period when it was sort of cool to be creating a, a, a world or, or building a world where this, where you had futuristic elements with sort of 
historic elements. Masters of the Universe, baby. Yeah. That's part of the appeal. I mean, it was very innocent, but still it was technology and sword and sorcery together or Thundar the Barbarian. I love those mashups where magic and swords are mixed with laser guns and like, you know, cybernetic horses and things like that. They go together so well, but it's attempted so rarely. Exactly. It was, I think it was sort of a a trending sort of, uh, idea back in the 80s without a doubt Probably all and, comes from uh, heavy metal magazine and metal herlant yeah. and things like that like all those artists right. are inventing all that crazy shit in the 70s and early 80s i imagine that's probably the the inspiration for a lot of this right right definitely but yeah it's uh it was very interesting because it is such a mashup of different genres so you don't quite know where it's going upon first viewing you're not quite sure what to expect but that's sort of I think what they were intending for it to be is something that is unpredictable. You're not, you know, why does he have this little, you know, symbiote in his hand? Like they never really they never tell you. That. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So people don't know D is basically he's like your Toshiro Mifune kind of like Ronin character who, after there's an initial tragedy where the uh, the main character of the movie, who's the character name is Darce Lang, we see her basically just looking after her property, and there's this mutant on her property that's like you know eating her fruit. She hunts it down. The mutant freaks out, eats her horse. A werewolf comes after her horse, and the werewolf knocks off her crucifix from around her neck, which invites Magnus Lee to be able to come and kiss her, as she says, and basically infects her and contaminates her with vampirism. And now she's trying to find a way to kill this master vampire who's basically invincible because in this world, the older a vampire gets, the stronger they get. And so D rides into town just like Clint Eastwood or Toshiro Mifune or any of these old guys to save the day. And he's a man of very few words. He's a man whose actions speak louder than, but as you mentioned, he has this symbiotic creature for a (laughs) hand who has additional abilities. And spoiler alert, by the end of the movie, we also come to learn that he is a, a Dampier, and he's a half vampire, half human, much like Blade in the uh, the Wesley Snipes flicks. And his father is none other than Dracula himself. So for 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 millennia, he's been hunting down vampires and his own kind, eliminating eliminating them from the face of the earth. And I just think D is such a badass because he's got the desires of a vampire and he obviously hungers for human flesh and human blood, but he's a noble creature as well. And he's always abstaining from, you know, surrendering over to his true nature, unless he's in a situation where he just has no other choice, but to vamp out and use his vampiric powers to get out of a tight spot. Yeah, definitely. When you first are introduced to him, he he says very little. And I, I, I really enjoyed this, uh, this quote from, um, the younger brother. He says, yeah, (laughs) he says, um, there are two kinds of quiet men, the, the kind who stay silent because they're thinking bad things, and the ones who've seen a lot of bad things and don't want to talk about them more than they have to. Gotcha. <laughs> that was That's a really different cool. translation. But the version I've seen from 1992, it's, it's a slight variation, so it's interesting. I, need to, I guess at some point I need to just suck it up and watch the 2015 version in spite of my emotional attachment to the old one because it right. sounds like they, they altered the, uh, the screenplay a little bit because with a lot of these translations sometimes, they're just going for like, a rough ballpark kind of thing. <laughs> and as long as they get kind of close to this, the, the intention of the original material, then they kind of call it a day. But- yeah. Well, I was sort of hoping actually that it would be subtitled. I actually prefer if I can to watch things in their original um, language and, and soundtrack. Um, yeah. Animation very rarely is subtitled. Yeah. 
I mean, even it with was, Hayao uh, Miyazaki films, they they dub them. I know, I know. It's uh, it's just something that I understand that it it appeals to a wider audience if you can hear. But I don't mind reading. In fact, sometimes I'll put on subtitles on English language movies just because I find that by reading and seeing, I, I sort of absorb more of the the meaning of the of the dialogue. But um, but yeah, it's uh, the the other thing I noticed about it, uh, at least on this Blu-ray that I watched, is that it is presented in a four by three aspect ratio, yep. not not widescreen. And I looked it up, and because it was originally designed to be part of this new OVA market um, for you know home video market, that was really the composition that they that they intended it to be in. Even though it did screen theatrically in, in Japan and some other markets, it was screened in a in a four by three, sort of like the old Academy films. Yeah, I mean, like Hollywood screen yeah. movies in four by three for decades before they yeah, discovered widescreen. Yeah, fifty five. So I, I love that on it, Twitter. Every once in a while, you'll see somebody like post a clip from a movie, and someone's like, "That would have been a lot cooler if you'd posted it in widescreen." I'm like, "The movie's from 1939, fuckface." Like, <laughs> learn your <laughs> yeah. history before you start, yeah. you know, ridiculing others. Like when people shoot first and aim later, they just make themselves look a little silly. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, doing reading some of the reviews and comments about this release um, online, and they were, you know, many of them were very, very complimentary of the the picture quality, and it was, it looked beautiful. There is some age that you can see in the film. Uh, there's a lot of you know, specks of dirt and, and they didn't do like a full restoration where they cleaned and removed every little bit of imperfection from the film. But it definitely has the, the, the color, the color correction, as well as the, the detail is, is, is incredible. But, um, some of the people on online were, were commenting on it being four by three and they're saying, Oh, that, that means it's not high definition. They just have, it's like, they don't understand that, HD doesn't mean widescreen. It's like this old sort of myth that people have. That no, well, people just like to get mad, and I find that yeah, people yeah. who are ranting or raving online, they'd much rather be mad than right. And so <laughs> it's like if you actually paused and did their homework, then they wouldn't be able to be mad anymore, and that would kind of spoil yeah. their fun. Like I love that bit when uh, Homer Simpson's trying to buy a gun, and they say you have to wait like, wait like for a twenty-four hour screening process, and he's like, "Oh, but I'm angry now," and, <laughs> and it kind of exactly. sums up internet culture. <laughs> Perfectly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, it didn't bother me at all. I, in, in fact, you know, that's that's how most animation was. Cell animation of the of that period was drawn four by three, and they simply matted it for projection theatrically. So, it, it, if anything, a widescreen release would have would have simply just matted Absolutely. the um, the existing footage. But it wasn't. As I was watching it, I, I was I was noticing there really was pertinent information at the bottom and top of the frame. So matting it would not have made it better in any way. It would have essentially been zooming in on the on the, the yeah, action. People, but I want my screen to have like, you know, a full image. Like, well what happens when you watch a two point three five to one? Like it, no matter what yeah. almost never you're gonna have like that perfect anyway, uh, less said about it's, those idiots, yeah. the, the, the the better. <laughs> but what I love about this eighty style of Japanese animation is the way they play with laws of physics. Like the first time that um that Doris meets uh yeah sorry Doris Lang meets D She's worried he might be a charlatan. He might be, you know, a coward like so many other vampire hunters. And she basically 
you know, whips out this whip and uh, <laughs> says, like, now surrender your sword. And when she leaps into the air to throw her whip at him, she leaps like 700 feet into the air as the whip spreads out in all these different directions and wraps around all of his limbs. But I love how in this, in this, in this world, at least, if you're a badass, like the laws of physics don't really confine you to the ground. You can fly around and do all sorts of crazy shit. And I just, I, I love that over-the-top wild sensibility that a lot of these Japanese animated movies employ. Like, or later on when he's fighting Raganzi and they're just flying through the air and attacking each other. It's because it's so still and so calm until the action erupts and then just all hell breaks loose. Yeah, totally. And it's, uh, it really, you know, having seen most of my Japanese animation after this film was actually produced and released in 1985, it really, it sh- you can see how this movie jump-started this sort of modern era of, you know, modern meaning like the last 30 years era of, of anime because it really was uh, a kind of a game-changer for what you could do for, you know, what you would show and what, what in terms of violence and nudity, but also, as the director said in that quote, targeting a very specific audience that seemed to be sort of not, oh, sort of underserved, <laughs> you know, not being, it's not just for purely for adults and it's not really for little kids it's that sort of middle middle audience that wants something very specific and uh yeah we you know i i would have loved as i said i would have loved this as a teenager it's uh it's too bad i didn't have access to it yeah i remember the reason i caught my eye was that the artwork for the vhs cover was so distinctive and so unusual, and uh, I've got his name down here. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, Yoshitaka Omano, the illustrator of the original novels. Yeah. He collaborated with the filmmakers on defining the look of these characters, and I've never – I needed to go back. And he worked on Final Fantasy 1 through 6 as well as um, Sandman. Yeah, which is I think which is why that image jumped out at me so much because I recognized that style from some of the boxes to the Final Fantasy games or some of the advertising that I'd seen like in Nintendo Power and things like that. (laughs) And it was just it was so distinctive and so unusual. And of course, when the movie, I mean, no one could animate a movie in that style. It would take you a hundred thousand years to include that level of detail. But man, a really great piece of art to promote your movie. As Tony Still is often pointing out, it's kind of sadly a lost art form. Now you hire an intern who can barely read to use a little Photoshop, and boom, yeah. they, they vomit out some some, some nonsense. And, oh, but it's just a marketing material. I don't care. Like a great piece of marketing can invite you into another world. And yeah, they were very successful because this was before I saw Crying Freeman, before I saw Gogo 13, The Professional, before I saw really any of these Fists of the North Star. Vampire Hunter D was the one that really whetted my appetite. And for whatever reason, Blockbuster and this other video chain called Video Review in Greensboro, North Carolina, they got this. It must have just been like a giant box set because they went from having no Japanese animation to having like 12 or 13 all at once. And so I just ripped right through them. And that's how I discovered Ninja Scroll and uh, Ghost in the Shell. I mean, Ninja Scroll and Ghost in the Shell, they've aged so well. Akira has aged so well. A lot of these have aged really well. And I don't know what was in the water at that time, but Japan was just cranking out all these classics one after another. Yeah, the the one thing that you can definitely see in this film is the I, they seem somewhat constrained budget wise. When you look at something like Akira, which came out I think three years later or two years later theatrically, it's a massive jump it, up. It's yeah. so much higher quality. Um, again, I, I mostly because this was for that OVA market. They weren't initially intending it to be theatrical, so they probably had a 
a TV or yeah. home video it's, budget. It's like comparing an episode with. of Star Trek from the late 60s to like the budget of Star Trek, the motion picture. Like it's a right. major jump yeah. in scale. Like yeah. Akira is a robust, big time, just elite level production. Right. So it does, that low budget element does make it feel a little bit dated, I think, for people to have who are just starting, who are just seeing it in its entirety for the first time. Uh, whereas something like Akira, you know, if you see a good, high quality blu-ray of that it's just phenomenal stunning I mean, the frame rate the the color the quality of the the animation is just beautiful and uh it's a masterpiece of art, you know artwork really I, it's almost hard to believe that something like that could be produced by hand-drawn <laughs> animators at that point in time before there was really any computer uh assistance of any kind and sadly very rarely equaled ever since ever since yeah because we were then quickly moving into the CG world. So it's almost like we had reached this pinnacle of hand-drawn quality in the late 80s and early 90s. Even, you know, Disney with, like, The Lion King, there was this sort of pinnacle of hand-drawn animation, cell animation, that just sort of got, who knows where how much farther it could have gone, right? Except CGI came on and Toy Story broke box office records and everyone's like oh this is the future a lot of people say the same thing about the silent era where they say like the silent film visually had evolved into such a sophisticated art form by the late 20s that it's almost a crime that dialogue and sound came in and arrested that visual development like if, if the yeah. silent era had lasted even like five more years who knows what new stylistic innovations might have emerged, but suddenly you were locking up cameras and soundproof boxes and all yeah. that visual development came to a screeching halt. So yeah, it's a very similar thing where disruptive, innovative technologies, you need them, but you lose something with all your gains. Yes. And even black and white film, you know, there, there was, when they, I think when they shot Schindler's List, there were, were no working cinematographers even knew how to shoot in black and white, <laughs> yeah. uh, how to light properly in yeah. black and white. It was such a lost art form. So, but if you look at some at Citizen Kane, it's one of the most incredibly lit and beautifully shot I think it's Greg Tolan who yep. did the cinematography, and it's just like whether you love the movie or not, visually it's stunning. It's just like every shot is a work of art. And again, who knows where we could have gone with beautiful black and white cinematography if if color hadn't really just taken over and television. But at least with color such... and black and white, it was like a gradual process because you started seeing animated yeah. movies in color in the 30s. But as sure. late as like the early 60s, you still had movies like John Frankenheimer's Seconds, like feature films being released in black and white, or like The Hustler of Paul Newman. So I feel like. Black and white definitely got to have its moment in the sun with so many great filmmakers and so many great, so many great um, uh, cinematographers. And I love, so I can't remember who said it once. They're talking about how it, when you're in love with some of these old movie stars and you're fantasizing about, you know, having one-on-one -on -one time with them, like you still fantasize about them in black and white. Like you wouldn't want to make love to Rita Hayworth in color. You'd have to make <laughs> love to Rita Hayworth in black and white. Like that's part of like the fantasy and the allure. So I feel like black and white at least got to have many, many robust decades of experimentation, whereas silent film, Basically, from like the mid-teens to the late 20s, that was like the sweet spot before it kind of came to a screeching halt. But with cell animation, at least we had cell animation from basically the teens, like Windsor McKay, up yeah. through like the late 80s, early 90s, where it really got to have an opportunity to like see the full flowering with movies like Akira. Right, exactly. And, you know, there were a few attempts to, I guess, salvage the, uh, the cell animation genre you know, with uh, movies like Titan AE, where they were mixing CG with cells, and it just didn't work. You know, they were trying. It looked I think, weird. To, yeah, it just it was something was off about it. So it that was sort of one of those 
last ditch efforts from like Don, I think it was Don Bluth's company to, um, to revive the, the classic, uh, aesthetic of animation. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's very outside of television right now. There's, I don't think, I can't think of a recent, uh, hand drawn. I mean, there was the Iron Giant, but that also mixed CG. Well, what I get encouraged by is when I see a movie, and this is a good shout out to Becca Deanna, when I see a computer generated movie, an animated movie like uh, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse, which doesn't look like every other yeah. computer generated animated movie out there, it actually has like the hand of the artist and it has almost, it's just, it's just a completely different flavor, a completely different style, a completely different approach. It didn't look like any other animated movie. So. I think sometimes uh, animators are perhaps disincentivized or just uh, they're maybe uh, afraid to explore some new terrain because if audiences don't recognize a certain style, and I think that movie deserved to make a billion dollars worldwide, and I think the unusual style threw people off, but five or ten years from now, who knows, maybe it'll seem much more mainstream. But we need yeah. those artists who are willing to experiment. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter, so I, I'm constantly taking her to these kids' movies, and, you know, Nine times out of ten, I I'm just so sick of the sterile CG animation. Some even uh, uh, you know movies like the Emoji Movie were just oh you know so bad. I mean I had to sit through this with my daughter, and it was just not something. I don't that... even have a kid, and I took myself to Lego Movie Two, <laughs> and Lego Movie Two was just an hour and forty five minutes of shrill shrieking hell. Like I fucking hated it. I was, uh, like, I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I've, I will probably take my daughter next week because they have their winter break so um i'll probably have to sit through it as well take her to see but, how to train your dragon 3 instead that's much more enjoyable how to train your dragon 3 is not as good as the first but pretty damn good lego movie yeah. 2 is just this embarrassment compared to the first one yeah I, I but yet it has a really high rotten tomato score i just something's off something again is off with the critical uh, response and it didn't do well at the box office either. So obviously your take is somewhat in tune with the audience reaction. There's a weird disconnect right now between critics and audiences, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But sometimes, not always, I feel like if a filmmaker is responding to a filmmaker's intentions or perhaps certain ideological ingredients, they will give it at least a passing grade. And also, Rotten Tomatoes, eighty-five percent might be eighty-five percent reviews that are like, "Hey, it was, it was okay. It was, it was pretty okay. good." Yeah, yeah it's it not like just... they're like, "Oh my god, it's fucking amazing." And I think that's right. what's lost in the Rotten Tomatoes score. But oh, without a doubt, it's 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 in it's inaccurate in that sense. I mean, it's like the old thumbs up, thumbs down. Roger Ebert and Siskel, uh, uh, Siskel, they just because they gave it a thumbs up just doesn't mean it was a, an amazing movie. It was just like a pass fail grade, yeah. you know? So it could be, okay, it was just good enough to get a thumbs up, but I wouldn't necessarily say uh, I recommend all my friends go see it. So it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to gauge these scores. I think that's why I think is it Metacritic does a better job at sort of weighting the, uh, the grading of those critics so that I just you, go to geeking with James Hancock where I get all right. the reviews that I need <laughs> nothing there's no other review for the longest time for me at least growing up uh in the 80s and early 90s it my go-to was Roger Ebert I just I thought he was I didn't always agree with him but he seemed to like a lot of the movies I liked like science fiction he was That's a really big fan you just got to find somebody that you're yeah. kind of in sync with yeah, yeah. So he liked a lot of movies. He loved, like, for example, Dark City, which I loved, and a lot of critics just didn't get it. Um, but he thought it was like the best movie of 1998. I think <laughs> he, was, he he's done all the he did these incredible uh, speaking engagements where he would pick apart the film shot by shot and just tell you every little 
thing that you missed or didn't understand it where it came from and it's something that again that's a that's a he was a real critic in that sense you didn't have to always agree with him he certainly didn't like uh full metal jacket the way i do <laughs> but as we've discussed before but yeah he he just some to me he he was able to get behind his his reasoning and give you a a, a good well-written rationale for why he did or didn't like a movie and i think that's sort of missing today there's not red letter media baby I, i've yeah. really fallen in love with red letter media in the, in the last couple of weeks and months and just been watching tons of their stuff problem is they just don't cover that many new releases they might cover one or two a month and they do a yeah. lot of like best of the worst and like kind of looking back but their channel is so successful and they get so much traffic, they don't really need to do daily updates. They kind of do like a video every week or two. And sometimes it's just like videos of them like melting Star Wars action figures with acid and stuff. It's <laughs> just like just weird shit right. like that. So yeah. I love and adore what those guys are up to. And I think they do a really good job of calling attention to the best and the worst. But sadly, they just aren't that – they're just not interested in keeping like their finger on the on like the pulse of each and every single new release. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so many people doing that already. I think that's what they probably learned that that's they're competing with a lot more people, a lot more critics if they're going to try to be on top of every single new release and being the source for, you know, what should I see, what shouldn't I see. There's so many other places people are uh, going to find that type of information already, and um, and frankly, I don't even know if most people go to movies. Based upon reviews, I think most people just go. There are plenty. Yeah. Of people, there are plenty of movies that are critic-proof and where criticism and reviews are utterly irrelevant. I mean, I would say yeah. Lego Movie Two and How to Train Your Dragon Three are, are those situations. Parents have kids; they need to entertain those kids. They need to take them to a room for a couple hours and distract them. They're like, "All right, yep. what's the new one this weekend? We're going. Who gives a damn about reviews?" So uh, reviews yeah. with those movies are basically immaterial. But because I'm interested in animation, I do try to see some of them. And yeah, Lego yeah. Movie Two, which is an abomination. But getting back to a movie that I like, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about character design in Vampire sure. Hunter D because the character design in this is just bananas. Like with some of when D basically lays siege to Magnus Lee's castle the first time. This is before Doris has even been captured. And he's just explore. It's like the coolest video game of all time in terms <laughs> of all the different worlds and different rooms he's going into. Like there's one room that's just filled with slime creatures. So he pulls out a little light and they kind of recoil in horror. And then slowly but surely he starts meeting somewhere like the next tier minions, like this giant with these fucking bombs and this weird skinny flying dude with knives and this other creature that spiders on, on little webs come out of his back and get on top of you. <laughs> but I love watching how initially they kind of outsmart and D kind of has to outmaneuver all of them. But then we see them attacking Doris's home. And within seconds, like they get rid of the doctor, they get rid of Dan, they grab Doris. And then finally, when D rescues Doris, we get to see round two with all these creatures again. And I feel like that's when this movie really finds that next gear, when we really see just how resourceful he can be when he's going up against yeah. these misshapen monstrosities. Yeah, when, he, uh, when he's escaping across the bridge and the giant is right, you know, grabs him by the leg and uh, he, he does a, he, he, you know, he was, he's able to make lower the bridge like it's like a drawbridge and so that it smashes his hand <laughs> the giant's hand and then hit the bomb that he's holding like blows off the whole side <laughs> of his body but yet he's still living yeah there were some pretty gruesome um scenes in this film but it, you know not repulsive but just for again for a, a 1985 release to imagine what audiences 
were thinking when I first saw this coming out of an animated movie must have been really revolutionary. It's uh, it's but in a cool way, you know. Yeah, I imagine there was a, a slice of the population that was like finally the cartoon I've been waiting for my entire life has arrived because once again you just didn't have horror sci-fi fantasy nudity and gore all kind of stirred together in such a concentrated little brew and it's just a short intense little story it's a very simple story it's basically yeah. a, a couple of fight scenes at Doris's house and a couple of fight scenes at the castle and they kind of put a neat little bow on it and at the end he rides off like in most samurai movies to have more adventures and I would say Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, which came out in like 2002, I think, which I saw in the theater. In the dark world of tomorrow, when vampires rule the night, from the darkest depths of hell, the ultimate form of evil awakens. This has been difficult for all of us. If you knew my daughter, you'd understand. Her loss is more than this old soul can bear. I'll give you 20 million. It may be too late for her. What then? Just bring her back one way or the other. After the destruction of our world. After the dead stalk the living. After the desire for blood pools all. The only hope left is the one they call D. She's here by her own choice. You kidnapped the girl. It's pretty cool. It just doesn't have this... It's a hard even to define the atmosphere and style and the tone of this movie where there's like this quiet background music throughout and just little things like orange skies with like blue lightning in the back there. Whereas in terms of the atmosphere, it's very specific and it's very subtle. And the next movie, which was directed by the guy who did Ninja Scroll, and I love Ninja Scroll. I think Ninja Scroll is one of the coolest animated movies of all time. It's just more of like a balls-in-your-face kind of badass action movie as opposed to this kind of subtle, nuanced horror movie. So that's what I missed in the sequel. The sequel is very cool, well worth watching. It's just not as specific a tone as the first one. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to watch the sequel for this recording, but I'll I'll definitely check it out just now that I'm interested in it. But... um. Yeah, I mean the the that's you're looking at what 15 years plus later for this for the second film. So it 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 had plenty of time to build off the cult following that the original had uh, had established. Whereas the original, which just kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, yes, it was based upon the books, so there was a, a, a there was source material. But in terms of it being animated, that was certainly just. Uh, a brand new thing for, for audiences. It's funny how the Vampire Hunter D sequel follows kind of the model of Blade 2 in a lot of ways, where with Blade, oh. like both with Blade 2 as well as in Vamp- and, uh, Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust, he has a team of badasses in the second one. Yeah. But that team, they get just utterly dismembered by some of these threats <laughs> that they're facing, much like in uh, in Blade 2. So it's, I, I'd have to check to see which came up first in terms of the, the chronology between Blade 2 and Vamp- Vampire Hunter D Bloodlust. But if you like vampire movies mixed with action, all these movies are uh, well worth hunting down. Yeah. One thing I, I noticed, and it could be completely just me, <laughs> but it seemed like Dee's look inspired 
that horrible movie with Hugh Jackman, Van Helsing. It seems Ooh, like he had the, the same hat, yeah. broad hat, <laughs> the, the big long duster, you know, the the you know the, the long hair, wavy hair. It's just something that I just kept thinking because that movie is, you know, Van Helsing is such a bad movie. But I like I can't get it out of my. Head. Yeah, it doesn't translate to live action very well. Like there are almost no examples I can think of where manga and anime have been successfully translated or adapted into live action. I remember watching Wicked City one time, the live action version. I was like, oh, it's like this is just terrible because Wicked City yeah. is also one of these really weird, strange sci-fi, demonic, erotic. Japanese horror movies, and it's one of my favorites from this period. I mean, Wicked City is right up there with Vampire Hunter D in terms of just how weird and subversive it can be, and has way more unusual sexual scenarios than you see. I mean, Vampire Hunter D is like, you know, it's a little nudity here and there, but Van- Wicked City is full blown, like, like an erotic movie in a lot of ways. But when you see the live action adaptation, it just doesn't work. Quick side note though, I did see Alita Battle Angel in 3D oh. last night. Oh. And while it's a really uneven, inconsistent movie, and it's got thin characters and kind of laughable dialogue and a lot, a lot of flaws. When it comes to the action and the character design, I was drooling in ecstasy throughout huge chunks of it. And you know how much I hate nice. 3D. I saw yeah. it at the 42nd Street, like in the in the really great 3D screening room. That's the the Dolby Cinema Room, probably exactly. that one. Yeah, and I was in awe of how great it looked. I mean, it helps when you have James Cameron producing and doing the 3D correctly as opposed to just converting it to 3D after yeah. the fact. But that might be the first, because that was originally a manga in 1990 and then uh, an anime in 1993. That might be the only example I can think of where they've actually successfully made the jump to live action and achieved some degree of success. Yeah, I mean, what, what Ian Flux was horrible years ago, that live action one. Oh, with Charlie uh, Theron, yeah. Uh, oh, that was horrible. And what was the one they just came out with a couple years Ghost ago? Ghost in the Shell. With, uh, Ghost in the Shell with Scarlet. Yeah, Johansson. I didn't yeah. see it because the first yeah, Ghost in the bad. Shell is one of the best animated movies I've ever seen. Yeah, And I'm just I know. happy to let that movie remain intact in my imagination. I saw it one late night, you know, at home. I just was like, well, I'll check it out. And it was not good not a not a well done film and it's like you said it's a shame because it's based upon such great material and it potentially could have been great but they should have yeah, just I'm, restored and re-released the original i know just i like, know that's what they don't understand it's, per- it's perfect <laughs> yeah and, and sometimes trying to translate it to a to live action is the biggest problem because they don't necessarily animation doesn't necessarily translate so i mean disney's doing it now with all of their films and you know with mixed results because why you know it's really a question of why they're what, the most what? redundant just yeah. utterly unnecessary movies ever made but they make like a billion dollars oh, each time so i yeah. i get it right for the investors <laughs> yeah i get it but i despise it <laughs> yeah it's just like again there's all one of my animation teachers said that animation should be used as a tool like any other filmmaking tool, but only if what you're creating with it can't be done through live action. Now, this was a long time. This is before CG has had evolved into uh, a tool that can pretty much make anything in your imagination come to life, as we've seen with um, with you know the films by James Cameron. You know, any, anything you can come, anything he can come up with in his head now, he can pretty much put on screen. With computers, but for a long time, animation was used as a, as as just that as a tool to help tell stories that couldn't be told through in camera, um, you know, photography. And I always liked that idea that 
if you're just going to make something photorealistic with animation, then why not just shoot it with a camera, exactly. you know? And if why, so again, why make a photorealistic Lion King when the first one is such an animated classic? And it looks like all they did was like swap out some voices and do a shot for shot remake. I guess essentially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we obviously haven't seen it. So we, until we do, we can't know for certain what the, but the birth of Simba scene, like they've recreated it. It's just yeah. like, why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why? Except for dollars. <laughs> yeah, money. many, many dollars. I saw that. And I'm a part of the problem. I paid to see The Lion King on Broadway. And they basically took the cartoon and then they stretched it out to like four hours by adding yeah. in the lamest, most idiotic songs in the history of mankind. It's like, all right, so now we've added our own contributions. We took a tight, compact, very effective, emotional, animated animated classic, and we've stretched it out and watered it down and diluted it into this monstrosity for Broadway, and now we can all make, make our millions. Yeah, exactly. It all comes down to money. If studios can make more money off of a franchise, they're going to do it. And, I mean, look at, I mean, really, any studio, look how much stuff is coming out of the Spider-Man universe because Venom did well. I mean, it's like, we don't need all these other, <laughs> no offense to our good friend Becky. who works She just markets them, she doesn't make them. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, so she, she doesn't always, have a yeah. decision in the, in the choices they're making. But, you know, kudos to her team for, as you said, for Spider-Verse. That was a really great, fantastic movie. And they, you know, they did a great job getting it out to... A, a wide audience and uh and it it stuck around for a very long time like it's yeah. weekend by weekend drop off and the box office was almost n- like negligible yeah most movies come out and they drop off 50 60 70 percent and that's kind of the norm spider-verse just kind of held steady for many yeah. many weeks so it's it's done just fine i just was hoping for it to be a runaway smash success yeah and i don't think it wasn't it just wasn't it didn't do Venom numbers. And exactly. Venom and was just beneath contempt in my eyes. I yeah, fucking despised I, I, it. <laughs> I think I told you, but nobody else. I actually fell asleep in the middle of Venom. As well, you now, should. that I, shouldn't I'm, happen. I'm jealous. <laughs> I just kind of like nodded off in the middle. I'm like, where are we? And you know what? I didn't have any problem picking up where I left off. Yeah, just it's watch just Upgrade like, instead. It's basically the same movie, but with a lot more creativity. Oh, Upgrade was great. Yeah. I really enjoyed Upgrade, yeah. It was, uh, And it didn't do any business at all. Like It yep. pretty much left the theaters and right to video, you know, right to digital. And, um, but a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, unrelated. I just watched, I just saw over the weekend, this crazy movie called, um, the man who killed Hitler and also killed Bigfoot. Oh, and Sam. then, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I meant to watch it. Yeah. How was that? I actually really enjoyed it. It's very unconventional. It's not schlocky at all. It's really kind of a character driven, you know, about this old guy kind of remembering his past, but it's really artful. It's a first-time director, and for a first-time director, I have to say he made a pretty. I'm really he made a good movie. I'm really curious to Are see the what Bigfoot he does. Are the scenes done with like sincerity, or is it kind of tongue-in-cheek? Yeah. Or it, no, no, it's like it's gruesome at one point, and I don't know how he was involved, but Douglas Trumbull was involved who did the effects on 2001. He's one of the producers. Um, how John old is he? He's got to be like 95 I years know. old. I don't know how. <laughs> He's got to be, yeah. I mean, he did uh, so many great films in the 60s and 70s, effects-wise. So uh, it was. it's not like what you're expecting it to be, but I think if you like sort of conspiracy theories and you like sort of alternate future... Well, I love Sam Elliott. I mean, he's such a badass. Yeah, Sam Elliott. If it wasn't for him, though, I don't know if the movie would work. He just grounds it and makes you feel for his character so much that it somehow 
despite the sort of preposterous <laughs> title. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he even said in an interview, like, well, that's what it's about. <laughs> so that a man who killed Hitler and then he killed the Sometimes Bigfoot. Sometimes a really descriptive, accurate title is all you need. Like they, I remember watching the behind the scenes documentary, they're making a Robocop and they're like, you know what? He's a robot. And he's a cop. Robocop. Right. Everybody knows exactly the movie they're going to see. So yeah, just yeah. let it be Robocop. And, right. and there's something to be said for that. Yeah. It's like, who cares if it sounds cheesy you know because it kind of does when when that movie first came out you're kind of like robocop when i was like 10 or 11 when i first saw this giant like cardboard version of the movie poster with him getting out of the car and i remember walking by with my friends and i was like robocop that looks so stupid and then we went to see it and we're like oh my god like we were just in awe but the post i remember the poster initially invited a lot of ridicule it did, yeah, and they. they I remember it in our local video store. This, you know, big life-size six-foot standee, as they called them. You yeah. know, with his uh, the full. You no, know, he had like one foot kind of in the car. Yeah, one yeah exactly. Yes, yeah. the classic image. Yeah, it's great. And I just remember looking at that, being like, "Oh, I gotta see that." <laughs> I, I had no idea what it was. Like, you know, it's it, back then, as we've said in previous episodes, we didn't have access to the trailers. We didn't have access to information outside of some film magazines you know, like Fangoria and things like that if you're into horror movies. So you really didn't know what was coming. Yeah, I had or... a Fangoria subscription. I remember there was, I remember vividly before I saw the movie, an image of them doing the special effect of Murphy's hand being blown off. And so I knew that was coming because I'd, I'd yeah. like, you know, really like focused. I mean, that was, maybe it was one of the first times ever I'd even seen like a special effect being made, but Fangoria definitely was an eye opener. So when that scene came, I remember I was like, oh, that's what I saw in Fangoria, blah, blah, yeah, blah. So exactly. yeah, it was never that horrifying to me to see his hand blown off because I kind of knew the magic. But before we get too off topic, I did want to call attention to one final thing on Vampire Hunter D. This movie does world building in a way that I think too often gets ignored where I think you see, you see so many franchises paralyzed with trying to do origin stories or lay the groundwork when sometimes it's better if you just dive in with both feet with an existing world and then just tease what the audience needs to know. Like at one point they have a flashback where they talk about a girl that was bitten by Magnus Lee. They put her in this like internment camp and you get this brief little flashback of the vampire going berserk and killing 31 villagers oh. and then the girl going mad with grief and uh, and dying. We I didn't see – they didn't have that in my version. Oh, cause, are, are, they we, tell the story but they don't show anything. Oh, interesting. So I, I'm going to have to yeah. do a compare and contrast at some point at, at any rate like it fleshes in the backstory but i feel like a lesser movie would try to show how this world came to be and how it's it, like the, i feel like too many holiday movies get paralyzed trying to introduce too much as opposed to just taking for granted the audience has some intelligence and they can keep right. up and that if you tease little bits of information it allows their imagination to fill in the gaps like when i see star wars movies doing like rogue one or like uh, solo a star wars story don't get paralyzed trying to flesh in the backstory. Just, I don't know, I, I need forward momentum. And I feel like, yeah. like Alita, going back to Alita Battle Angel, this is a movie that does it really, really well. It's this fully formed universe. They throw you into the thick of things, but through Alita, because she's a blank slate and has no memory, we learn all that we need to know through her asking questions on our behalf as she's learning her environment. And we get little brief flashbacks of the world throughout but I just see so many movies getting that wrong. And anytime a franchise seems to be in trouble, like, oh, we need to reboot it. We need to start at the beginning. It's like, no, don't go back to the beginning. Stay in the present. Just keep going. I just, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm repeating no, myself like, at this point. Well, it's what we've talked about many times with Star Trek. You know, why not continue on past Next Generation? 
I want to know what happens next. Why do we keep revisiting the Kirk or pre-Kirk era, whether it's Bad Discovery Robot has or no Enterprise. Ideas. Yeah. Um, but even with Enterprise, you know, the, the Scott Bakula series tried to do the same yeah. thing. They, they've been doing this for 20 years now, trying to explore the backstory. And again, I still like Star Trek. I'll still watch it. But I have always wanted to see a continuation of what happened after the events of the final Next Generation movie, Nemesis. Uh, and may and I guess we will be getting that with this Picard series soon. So hopefully, but the thing about with Bad Robot with their three Kelvin timeline movies, it's all about revisiting or rewriting or reimagining the origins. But it's like yes. y'all have spent yeah. ten years now doing this. Now, like, when are you going to introduce something new? Your own creations, your own ideas, your own characters, your own storylines. I, I I despise this idea of constantly having to squeeze every last dollar out of these aging franchises and they feel like by revisiting the past they can like I'm all for keeping these I mean I guess people now call them legacy franchises and these are legacy franchises if they've been around 30 40 50 years but man it's I feel like if you're not trying to find some way to carry it forward just come up with a new like so a lot of people say with Star Trek Discovery why not just have a show called Discovery don't call it Star Trek. Just call it Discovery. Have all the same storylines, all the same characters. Just let it be its own science fiction story as opposed oh, yeah. to sure. rewriting one of the most beloved characters in science fiction history, Spock. Like, if you aren't rewriting Spock, you have so much more goodwill with the sci fi fan base. Yeah, because you would be just, it would just be like watching Battlestar Galacta. You're just, you're just inventing a new, and that, oh, I mean, that was a remake as well. So that wasn't a good example. Yeah. But. I, I was like two when the original one came out. So I don't know how much. Yeah. A sentimental loyalty there was to that first season. Yeah. But I feel like that one was ripe for reimagining. Yeah. And that's, but I think that's a good example of. Whereas of, Star Trek had 10 movies and five shows that yeah. created the, the canon. And so people are very loyal to that canon, very attached to that canon. And if you mess with that, that's when you start uh, inviting on these problems. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, we've invested so much of our lives learning and watching and reading the comics and the book, you know, everything and understanding where things were. And then when the canon starts to contradict what you already know is, is canon, um, then it, it becomes very frustrating indeed. And then they <laughs> insult you if you raise any sort of objection. It's like, oh, well, you're toxic. Right. It's like, what do you mean I'm toxic? I've been sp- spending, giving you money for decades. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, thank well, like you. you said, the problem, the problem is that they're trying to kind of shoehorn it this new these new ideas into an existing universe when really it might not be a bad sci-fi show as a standalone show it's just not quite working this current season i actually enjoyed the first season especially the second half um and i also really the mirror liked mirror the, stuff was the best yeah. i was having a lot of fun with the mirror mirror episodes yeah and it really felt like they were letting their hair down and enjoying themselves. But I think it's a weird thing where somebody would look at a franchise with an existing fan base and decide, well, we're going to discard the existing fan base and look for a theoretical or hypothetical new one that might be better or what we're seeking. Like the Star Trek fan base is probably the most like specific and dedicated and well-informed and intelligent fan base of any existing fan base. So when you yeah. start messing with those people, you're going to get some intelligent like reactions and pushback. It's not just like, man, you suck. Like they're they're going to, I mean, Star Trek fans become people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like they get inspired to like travel to the moon and shit like that. It's just, it's a very different kind of fan base. So why wouldn't they find a way to work with that fan base as opposed to directly like assaulting them? Well, I I think it has something to do with the fact that they're, it's almost like what they're doing is they're saying, we, 
we know we have our hardcore fans from way back from 66 on, you know, we have these people who are now, you know, ranging from, you know, 30 to 80 that loved Star Trek, but how do we get those younger people that never watched anything pre- previously? They're trying so hard to sort of tap into a new audience or to attract a new audience, a new audience that likes to watch streaming programs on, you know, versus um, watch movies, you know, on DVD and Blu-ray, you know, they're trying to get those younger people, but by doing it, are they alienating some of the fans? Perhaps they are. And that's, that's, they have to understand that it's going to happen. They're, they're, you cannot mess more than anything. You can't mess. It's mess with the canon. If you, quality is a whole nother thing. If you don't like the writing or you don't like the, the, the decisions, that's, you know, that's, anyone can make up their own mind about that but when you start changing things as you said the things that we assumed were sort of set in stone then it's gonna it's gonna make people confused and upset there's no question so well it reminds me when i was uh, getting into comics in the early 80s where at that point marvel had like 20 years of pretty intricate detailed thick dense continuity established yeah and rather than it being like a barrier to entry or an impediment to entry it made it that much more interesting and fascinating. I was like, oh my God, I've got all these characters and storylines that I get to go back to explore. And I remember they would do such a great job of like referring to the first appearance of Kang the Conqueror, referring to the death of Gwen Stacy. And because these had taken place, in my mind at least, like millennia ago, they took on these giant like mythic proportions so that when I finally did get to read the death of Gwen Stacy or I finally did get to read like the Creed Scroll War, I felt like I was getting like privileged access to these like really rare, just like mythological epic yeah. stories that I in my and that totally lived up to what I built up in my imagination. And so I think sometimes people wrongly assume that to bring in a new audience, you have to wipe the slate clean and start over and give them like a fresh jumping on point. I think a lot of people really enjoy the lore and the background and exploring it. As, I mean, or if you can't do that, just come up with something new like The Expanse. The Expanse is the best sci-fi on TV. It's fucking awesome. It checks off all the political and progressive boxes that Star Trek Discovery is trying to, but at the same time has superb storytelling, a new world. It's got this great new series of books all from the 21st century, and they're breaking all sorts of new ground, and they are just beating the pants off Discovery in every way, shape, or form because first and foremost, they're trying to tell an, just an epic sci-fi saga about a civil war in our solar system with a little bit of uh, AI, not AI, kind of alien alien life kind of like thrown in for good measure. And I'm just absolutely riveted by it. And I feel like the people who over at Star Trek Discovery would have so much to learn from the expanse. But I think rather than arguing about Star Trek and start arguing about Star Wars and arguing about Marvel and all that stuff, we just need new franchises. No one gets in fights about whether or not people are ruining your childhood or betraying like a, a legacy <laughs> franchise. If you just come up with new ideas, come up yeah. with Vampire Hunter D, break some new ground and yeah, give us and some good, new shit. You'll start a new, you know, it's something like um, Stranger Things, even though it's based off of so many different other movies and, and shows and books, it at least is something that's a start. It's starting from scratch in a way. It's a new franchise. They just came out with a book that's part of the official yeah, canon. Yeah, I saw you tweeting about that. Uh, yeah, Matthew Modine yeah, was posting it. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, it takes place in 1969, so it's sort of the backstory of Dr. Brenner's character and the experiments that he was doing on Eleven's mom. But at least it's something new. It's something that's not building off of a 20 or 30 year old franchise. It's something that people are loving, and they're expanding it in new ways and new and uh, new directions. Uh, as they move along. So we're moving forward, you know, as opposed to constantly, you know, trying to recapture something that 
that we loved as a kid. And, uh, you know, again, I'm, I love nostalgia. I, I can't get enough of it, but I'm fine going back and just rewatching the stuff <laughs> that I enjoyed as a kid. To me, that's what's exciting. That's what I love doing is re-experiencing those, those films. S- something about, um, you know, like the, the, tr- the Transformers franchise is a great example. They, for me, they don't, I loved Transformers in the eighties, but these movies, except for Bumblebee, I enjoyed it. Um, they're not, any, they're, they're not any good. They don't make me feel anything at all. They're <laughs> got some, like, and I I want to feel like I did as a kid. If I go to a Transformer movie, I want to feel that excitement I had when I was 10 and it doesn't, those films, how many of five, five of them? I don't even know. I think? Yeah. They just, they just keep getting worse and worse. Except for Bumble, I enjoyed Bumblebee because they decided just to go back with the, to go back to what the uh, the the fans my age wanted. I heard there was the a battle on character. Cybertron that was a great nostalgia trip. Yeah. Oh, that was the best part of the movie. The opening scene. It was a lot like it was very short, but it was a lot like that opening scene in Terminator Two. You got this great battle in the future, that is very short lived, but. When I, you know, when I first saw that scene in 1991 uh, of Terminator 2, I, it blew my, it blew me away. Like I'd never seen anything like yeah, I that. I remember my brother coming fighting. home from it. He's like, dude, there's this scene where there's like yeah. Terminators walking around. It's this fucking war. Like he was just, it just, yeah, he, he couldn't yeah. even get the worth of his mouth. He was so excited. Yeah, it's like we hadn't seen something like that and that kind of future apocalyptic battle, you know, scene like that, and it was just mind blowing. But that's sort of like the uh, Bumblebee. Uh, if if you don't want to watch the whole movie, just watch the opening scene. And there's a few flashbacks as well. Those are worth, you know, the the rental price if you if you've avoided it. Well, off the <laughs> top of your head, what do you think are the best new franchises in the 21st century that neither have a book or a comic or a game or a previous movie or show of any kind that was actually available in the 20th century? So what is new that's building a cool, unique fan base where you don't have people arguing about? betraying like their memories or betraying their childhood like what is who are the people that are leading the charge because i feel like this is hollywood's biggest problem right now is a dearth or a lack of these bold new exciting franchises that are brand spanking new that are not based on something from the 20th century yeah it's a tough one um so you're, you're talking about like in the last 20 years yeah, in the last 19 years something that yeah. a, a show or movie franchise with sequels or spinoffs or whatever that is exclusive to this century well i mean i i, I did enjoy visually i enjoyed avatar and i don't know how where it's going to go I, it could be amazing it could be complete overkill you know with these four sequels that he's producing i think they've already filmed all of the motion capture photography already for all four sequels um, which is crazy to think of. What a, how do you produce a movie? How do you produce four movies at once? It's just mind-boggling to me. You know, it's call James it Cameron. Yeah, <laughs> right. Christopher Nolan could do it. Probably Stanley yeah. Kubrick could have done it. Yeah, but you, yeah. you just need somebody with a big vision and yeah. the means and experience with which to make it happen. Definitely, yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious to see because this is a, a, a it's his. I mean, yes, it's based on. Uh, everything from Dances with Wolves to Pocahontas, at least the first film, but who knows where he's going to take it. Yeah. Maybe it'll be absolutely... Something tells me he's going underwater. <laughs> well, 
literally <laughs> he, no, he just goddamn yeah. he's he's somebody who likes the bottom of the ocean more than any, yeah. more than anywhere else on this planet so yeah no, something tells me the sequel will be heavily underwater i mean but i i, I will see them obviously and yeah seeing alita battle angel last night which is uh, you know produced and written by james cameron i was like right hey this is i'm getting to watch essentially a james cameron movie granted it's directed by robert rodriguez but it was just cool just being reminded that he's still active he's still busy he is, and he he wanted to for twenty years to direct it, but I think he just got too wrapped up in the Avatar yeah. world to be able to handle the directing duties on top of everything else. Uh, you know, I, I've we've discussed it with Becky. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Cameron's, especially his early years. Um, despite you know stories of him being a tyrant, I just think thought he made amazing films from '84 through what 94 yeah. what, yeah, it's that 10 year period which is yeah. very juicy yeah and uh, i haven't revisited titanic since it came out so i can't really say how i would feel about that movie now but i did enjoy i did enjoy avatar for what it was it it it, it was somewhat derivative of other works without a doubt but visually it did introduce us to 3d in a way that i never thought 3D could be done, you know, 3D up until that point, and really since, and maybe Battle Angel will. Hugo did 3D well. Very few have done it. Most 3D movies are a gimmick to get you to pay twice as much money. But goddamn it, Alita Battle Angel. Now I see what the format could be. The problem is, it's just the entire industry has decided to corrupt and destroy the format by giving us subpar experiences and trying to basically assume that we're so stupid we won't notice the difference. Right. And it, that, that, that bothers me because it does, it is an artist, there is an artistry to proper 3D cinematography. It's a real toolkit and a DP's, you know, um, kit of tools. <laughs> it just, um, it's unfortunate that so many studios utilize 3D as a, as a gimmick, as a marketing like the tool. Last as the airbender as a, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, to sell more tickets, you know, I, to make the tickets prices I mean, higher. the level of detail and the clarity of the image, I, did, I was like, I can't believe I'm watching a 3D movie. You, the, the detail was, I felt like I was looking in like a pool of water. It was so clear and so beautiful. I was just in awe of just the technical detail that they were able to, uh, to achieve because it's just in the last 10 years, no 3D movies have achieved that. It's just it's, yeah. like, it's been a, a format that's been just dying on the vine for a decade. Exactly, and that theater you saw it in was the proper one to see it in because the Dol- Dolby Cinema projection system can project twice as bright as a standard projector. And the problem with 3D, for the most part, with the glasses, is it makes everything Murky. darker yeah. by about 50%. Yeah. So if you can project twice as bright, you're going to sp- finally see 3D in a way that looks like you're not watching 3D, you know, won't look all murky and like you're under, you know, wearing goggles. Within which you seconds, are. I forgot I had the glasses on. Oh, well, exactly. And I think that play, it's a lot to do with the, the proper use of 3D, but also that type of theater. So um, I just, anytime I can, I try to see movies in Dolby Cinema theaters now because I just, you get such a better quality uh, movie going experience in those, in those theaters. But um, yeah, I, it's hard. To, I can't think of a, another franchise off the top of my head that, like, I personally am just like, super excited about. Um, that's really new, and that's maybe that's a problem, right? It's a huge I, problem. I have a few examples, like the fact that Expanse is now on Amazon, the fact that it is a successful series of books, and they're going into their fourth season. That is a franchise at this point, and it's a beloved franchise by those who watch it. It's a small but intensely devoted sci-fi fan base. The Kingsman. 
Some will say, oh, well, it's inspired by James oh, Bond, yeah. but the comic and the movies, and there's a they have an upcoming third movie as well as a TV show that now officially is a franchise unto its own, and it's yeah. all being helmed by Matthew Vaughn. So it's got a singular kind of guiding vision. So yeah. that's an example. Sure. Some will say Harry Potter, but for me, the book started coming out in the late 90s, so it's still loosely based on something from the 20th century. But the 21st century desperately needs just an injection of new ideas. Maybe Game of Thrones. Friends. When was that? When uh, were the book started coming first? out like in 94. Yeah, so that's too far back. I mean, TV, obviously, it's been one of the big 21st century phenomenons. Right. But it's just one of those things where I, I'm so sick of people having these arguments about fucking over the existing fan base. And the solution to all of our problems is just cool new shit. And it always will yeah. be. Yeah. Or just accepting that you don't, if you don't like the new stuff, it doesn't have to ruin the old. That's how I feel. Like, if I don't like it, I just put it out of mind, you know? If, if you don't want to see a new Ghostbusters movie, don't watch it, you know? <laughs> For the people that want to see it, let them have it. It's just the, the only downside to that is that those artists, those people working to create those movies could be creating, as you said, new franchise is something for uh, for everyone something that will will be exciting and uh and reach a whole new audience um but i personally don't really care like a good example where i think they did it a good job is is cobra kai you know revisiting the karate kid <laughs> fan Fuck franchise. It, i loved cobra kai <laughs> i mean <laughs> like there i'm like this is perfect for me like this is it doesn't ruin the ex- what ruined those movies were the horrible the third one and the next karate kid with Hillary Swank and all that. That's what ruined the movies. Yeah. <laughs> no, I saw Karate Kid two in the theater, so yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah, I saw three on yeah. TV quite a few times, and yeah, yep. I saw the Hillary Swank the number four. But I, I, oftentimes, often I find it's a great thing you can do as well. Then the, people have done this in comics a lot. You take an obscure story and an obscure character that was not necessarily that well done. And then dust it off, clean it up, and make it work, like like Westworld. Westworld, uh, you know, relatively obscure early seventies sci-fi flick, had some fans, yeah. but it basically been forgotten by most people. And suddenly, it's this prestige show on HBO, and people, it's like it's brand new. It's a whole new take. It, it's loosely inspired by and draws inspiration from, but it still it totally works as its own thing. I think. Like when James Robinson came and took the character of Starman and made one of the coolest comics of the 1990s, I oftentimes feel like don't take Star Wars and try and reinvent it because it's just so beloved. But find like Logan's Run or something like that where you're just like, you know, screaming to be done better. I mean, I I really do enjoy Logan's Run, but it's a very dated, you know, pre-Star Wars 70s (laughs) sci-fi flick. So I feel like those are the opportunities that filmmakers should be looking for. That's a a little fact. That movie in 76 won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. And then the next year, Star Wars won the Best Oscar for Visual Effects. Now, if you look at those two movies, they look like they're made 20 years apart. Yeah. <laughs> Their quality of Star Wars effect. doesn't have Jenny Agutter, though. And Jenny Agutter, will, no. she's ageless. She's the best special <laughs> effect you can possibly have. Yeah. Well, any but, final uh, but, thoughts on Japanese animation recommendations you have when it comes to animation? Because I feel like as two guys who have dabbled in the world of animation, you actually far more so than I, you've got a lot more credits on Bill's movies than I do. But I think we should be doing a better job of being a champion for and advocating for cool, obscure, animated movies that have either been forgotten or neglected you know, or unacknowledged, etc. Yeah, I, I think there's just a wealth of of, of content out there that you have to sort of find, like if you like, if you like something like Vampire Hunter D, then 
there's so much great content to watch the uh, you know in the anime world i have not seen it all with uh, i'm certainly this is an area that i need to catch up in but i i got a box set of all of the miyazaki films recently on blu-ray they put this really beautiful set together and i've been slowly going through them some of them i had hadn't seen in in a long time um and some i'd only seen you know, and really poor quality. So to sort of revisit them all. And that's the way I, when I like to watch movies, I like to sort of pick a director and sort of go through their, their catalog over time. And that to me is a way to really sort of take the deep dive. We have a friend who likes to watch movies uh, based upon an actor that connects them. Uh, don't, um, don't even bring up how John Holdery <laughs> chooses what movies to watch because I find it to be, uh, the less that about it, he has a very esoteric, unusual way of allowing himself to see certain movies. He doesn't just see the movies he wants to see. Allowing, that's the he key. He has yeah. to get to it through other avenues. And he's always sending us these texts about how he's finally cooked up a way that he's actually allowed to see Avengers Endgame. I'm like, well, you're, you're a grown man. You're 50. You can just go if you want to. You don't have to right. set up all these roadblocks. <laughs> right, right. And I, but we've talked about it, and I, I understand where he's coming from in the sense that there's so much content. You almost need a, a method to the madness to sort of consume media because otherwise, and I've had this happen to me, I'll just sit there looking through Netflix or whatever, and I'll just spend an hour, and I'll never pick anything. I'll be like, oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, I'll just keep looking and looking and looking. But unless you can for like this was a great example. This episode gave me a chance to sit down and watch Vampire Hunter D properly which I've been meaning to do for many, many years. <laughs> so it's a great, this gives you an excuse to visit or revisit something that you've been meaning to watch. But for John, it's sort of a way to program his nightly viewing. He, 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 I think he has like three months in advance all plotted out, like what movies he's going to watch every single night. For me, that's and, like somebody before a sexual encounter telling me what minute by minute, every single move <laughs> that we're going to do up right. through the, the final moment of consummation. Like sometimes it's fun to explore and discover as you go, but John's okay. got a very rigid way of doing things sometimes. So he's got a very specific approach to movie watching. So he's, he's figured out his way, his way. So more power to him. Yeah, no, but I, like I said, I, I, I like to pick a certain genre or a certain director and sort of dive in and just, and consume as much as I can from, from that individual uh, in, you know, one, in, in a week or two or whatever it might be. And uh, for me, animation, you know, can be, you can do that with animation. You can sort of at attack. Maybe you haven't seen all the Pixar films, go back and, and watch all the early Pixar movies. Um, those certainly, those, most of the, the first 10 years of Pixar films, well, maybe like maybe 12 years, I think still hold up pretty well. They, they've sort of had some trouble in the last, in the last decade Unfortunately, they're they're they've been pretty hit or miss. Yeah, they've had some brain drain, and they've been yeah. They just yeah. The, the the magic is gone. Like for me, my big thing when it, when it comes to animation is that there's such a wealth of great Japanese animation out there that I haven't seen that I've yeah. been enjoying going back and discovering some new stuff. Like recently, I saw people talking about this thing called Space Cobra. I was like, that GIF is so beautiful and so badass looking. What is this Space Cobra? So I, I ordered the feature film. It's also a show, but I ordered the feature film first. I started watching it. I was like. I kind of recognize this style, and sure enough, it's the exact same director as Golgo 13, The Professional, which is one of my all-time oh. favorite Japanese animated movies, and I was just thinking to myself, how many dozens, if not hundreds, of great obscure animated classics are there out there that are kind of erotic, kind of violent, kind of strange, that are left to be discovered, so... 
if people want to know some Japanese animation recommendations, I'll just repeat what I've said all along, that Golgo 13 The Professional, Ninja Scroll, Ghost in the Shell, Wicked City, Vampire Hunter D, Akira, you really can't go wrong with any of these. But I'm, I'm determined over the next few years to do the deep dive on all the things that I have not seen because I know there's just an ocean of obscure classics that are just waiting to be discovered. And a lot of it, frankly, is just it's not available, at least on in any quality format. And that's another problem is that I think with Vampire Hunter, Hunter D, it didn't even reach the U.S. on VHS until like 1993, yep. I think. So it took I, eight I, years. I discovered it summer 94. So even, yeah. even after that, it took me a year before I got my hands on it. Exactly. So there's a great example where this is a movie that was making the rounds in, in the other side of the planet. <laughs> but Americans weren't weren't either weren't aware of it or didn't have access to it, and obviously the internet ha- is changing all of that. But even Vampire Hunter D, I couldn't find it on any um, you know on any platform digital outside of like YouTube. You know, I couldn't find any official release other than the Blu-ray that I purchased. I was looking to see if it was on Amazon or iTunes or on any streaming platforms, and it's, it's not. So that's, a, that's part of the problem is that if it was more readily available uh, on, in a digital you know, platform, we would, I think, be able to help more people see it. <laughs> well, so beautiful. Well, where can people find you online if they want to talk about animation or also what else are you working on? What do you got cooking in the oven that you would like to uh, promote and discuss, et cetera? Um, well, uh, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Adam Rakoff. That's my handle, A-D-A-M-R-A-C-K-O-F-F. That's the only presence I currently have on social media. So feel free to follow. I try to follow everybody back if I, uh, if I'm, I'm not on it every single day. So I sometimes miss people, but, um, I try. And, uh, and if you message me, certainly I'll message you back and, we can we can talk about animation or whatever you whatever you're you're into if we are like minded. Uh, but um, right now, a film that I produced uh, a couple of years ago called "The Brainwashing of My Dad." It's a documentary. We're having a promotion right now on iTunes where you can rent it for ninety nine cents or buy it for three ninety nine. It's yeah, a significant cool. um, significant discount from its regular pricing format, and it actually it I think it's not currently in the top 20 but it was for about a week you could the movie was in the top 20 documentaries on itunes so i think it was it reached like number 15 it was the height of uh, where it was now considering that this movie is about three years old and that most of the top 10 are all oscar nominated this year documentaries that was a pretty uh incredible feat for us to be able to to get our our film um, in the top 20 there. So, um, yeah, it's a tough yeah, year when you got to compete against Won't You Be My Neighbor. Y- yes. Yeah. Which was outstanding. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and there's a lot. Um, what's the other one that's incredible? The, uh, the rock climbing one. Um, oh, uh, fr- fr- free, 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 free climb, free fall. No, not free fall. That's, that'd be bad. Um, called? God damn it. Free something or other. In any event, yeah, where he climbs the, yeah. the He's, uh, a, El Capitan. Yeah, he's a yeah. total badass. He's crazy. I've seen yeah. him interviewed twice on the Joe Rogan experience. And yeah, the guy's uh, an absolute maniac, but very calm. Actually, yeah, he's very yeah. calm. And there's another he's, one called the Dawn Wall, another one about guys climbing and like they, they even like sleep on the side of the mountain or, or the cliff. Um, so there's two kind of really great rock climbing documentaries out. Free Solo. Right free Solo. That's it. No, yeah. no relationship with uh, Solo A Star Story, but yeah, free <laughs> yeah, Solo. Nothing whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I, I'm working on a couple of different film projects. Uh, I can't say too much about them right now because we're kind of in early stages. Um, we, you and I, have a, a new animated short that we produced, which will where it's not 100% done yet. Bill but, finished it and then decided yeah. he hadn't finished it, so he's putting the finish. Right. He's putting the finishing touches on it. So we'll be announcing more about that in the near future, I'm sure. Uh, so keep checking us on Twitter and elsewhere and we'll <laughs> we'll keep you posted and um what else anything else what about you anything exciting new on your on your plate ah uh, just a lot of crap that i'm cranking out on my youtube channel and i just recently upgraded my internet service to the fastest service i could possibly get under spectrum so i'm gonna be doing live streams so it'll be a similar format to wrong reel but it'll okay. just be live so obviously no cuts i can't edit out all my stuttering and all my babbling nonsense. I'll actually have to focus on getting things right when I say it and speak with a little more purpose. But I do want to start doing some uh, some interviews online as live streams because also when you do them as a live stream, like part of the I, – I could put out more content if I didn't have to spend so many hours editing this stuff. So my video reviews right. and the podcast, I spent a ton of time editing them. I was thinking, well – I could crank out like twice as much shit if I didn't have to edit. So doing live streams removes that part of the process. And then I can repurpose those live streams audio and put them on wrong reel. So more and more mm. wrong reel and my YouTube channel are going to overlap and merge to a degree. So geeking with James Hancock will be presenting some episodes of wrong reel moving into the future. It'll work. You could be, you could have it be fast and the furious presents geeking with James Hancock presents wrong reel. Absolutely. <laughs> That's just me taking a jab at the stupid title uh, uh, for Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, I mean, <laughs> the title is Fast and the Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw, which is the dumbest thing. In the, why couldn't you just call it Hobbs and Shaw? That's what everyone's going to call it. But yeah, I, the trailer <laughs> looked pretty goddamn fun. I'll be there. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not going to see the movie. I'm yeah. just saying it's a dumb. It's a, that's an example of the marketing department thinking that audiences are so stupid that they won't connect the dots that this is part of the Fast and the Furious or franchise. Or thinking that the people who want to see Jason Statham in a rock mo- in, a, in an action in the Rock in an action movie aren't going to go see it, irrespective of whether it's connected <laughs> or not. That just right. those two guys are some of those popular action stars in the world. People are going to go, and so it's just icing on the cake that it's connected to yeah. this other universe. Right. We, exactly. All it's a spinoff, and we've been talking about this forever. But that hey, there's a franchise, Fast and the Furious, in the last two decades. Started in 2001. But wasn't the original one from the 60s? But it had nothing to do with uh, the 2001 remake, right? I, I, mean, I don't know. I've never seen the one from the 60s. Yeah. Apart from the title, yeah. I didn't know if that was like loosely the inspiration for like. I mean, people forget that this franchise began with people drag racing for cars, like in pink slips. Right. Like, and now yeah. it's superheroes with like powers. Like Idris Elba <laughs> is a yeah. supervillain with powers. I know, with like armor. <laughs> it's it's incredible. I love that. Like that that franchise has continued to evolve and change and pivot, and it's like. Guess what? People want superheroes. We're going to give you one. Idris Elba is a superhero and just suck it up. Well, even The Rock's character, you know, he's got like a broken arm in the last movie or the two movies ago. I don't even know. But he just like breaks his cast off (laughs) to go fighting. It's like these characters are completely impervious to harm. And yeah, it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah, but the first movie is almost unrecognizable now in comparison to where the franchise has gone to. But yeah, I'm not saying it's. A, it's it's a it's a weird franchise where it started off pretty strong with that first movie for what it was, and then the second movie was horrible, and then it kind of had this weird like dip for the third into the fourth, and somehow we're around the fifth movie, Fast I five. think. Yeah, when it kind of took on a whole new trajectory and just took off, and people have been 
loving it ever since. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap yeah. this up, but we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Right. I know we tackled a lot of different topics that weren't necessarily Vampire Hunter D, but if you like Vampire Hunter D, you can always find me on Twitter at Colbrex, and we can talk about how fucking cool that movie is. I've watched it a million times. I'm sure I'll watch it a million times more. I never get tired of it. And if you want to get some more content, you can always find it at my YouTube channel, Geekin' with James Hancock. And hopefully in the near future, I'll be able to twist Adam's arm and get him to come on for a live stream about a topic of interest to him. But thanks again for listening. We greatly appreciate the support. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but... Uh... Do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>